Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 3, Episode 40. Last week, I covered both Seti I and his son, Ramses II. But considering how influential Ramses was, and that he may have been the pharaoh of the Exodus, I needed to go into great detail concerning his reign. So, in that episode, I only covered his foreign exploits. This week, I'm continuing the history of Ramses, but this time focusing on everything he did internally. So with that, let's get started. Ramses II would rule from 1279 to 1213 BC, and was the third pharaoh of the 19th dynasty. His Egyptian name, which I'll spare you, could be interpreted as the keeper of harmony and balance, strong and right, the elect of Ra. Ramses built extensive temples, monuments, and other structures throughout Egypt and Nubia. Records of accomplishments can be found throughout the territory of the former empire. Records carved in stone, taking the form of statues, and in buildings like temples and palaces. When he decided to build something, he built it on a scale unlike almost anything before. In the third year of his reign, Ramses began the most ambitious building project in Egypt since the pyramids, which were built some millennia and a half earlier. To put that in context, it would be similar to a modern building constructed to outdo the Hagia Sophia, the Basilica turned mosque turned museum in Istanbul, built by Eastern Roman Emperor Justine. While it's only been a few episodes since I covered the Giza pyramids, to Ramses, it was 1,500 years earlier. And Ramses seemed to know what he was doing, at least so that his legacy would truly be preserved. When he decided to memorialize himself in stone, he dictated changes to the methods used by his stonemasons. Instead of the elegant yet shallow reliefs of previous pharaohs, Ramses ordered much deeper carvings. Why? he had seen that these shallower reliefs could easily be transformed by a succeeding pharaoh. Words, along with images, refocusing on a later ruler. After all, he had done it himself, having had his name inscribed on pre-existing statues, buildings, and monuments. He was going to ensure that this did not happen with his record. In Thebes, he had ancient temples altered to show himself as a force of divine nature and power. In the last episode, I touched on the military importance of his new city, Pi-Ramses. But it wasn't just a military town. Its name translates to the House of Ramses. At some point, before the year 1275 BC, he began construction of this great city in the eastern delta region near the older city of Avaris. It was his capital with the capital having previously been in Thebes. And even after later rulers would move the capital elsewhere, it would remain an important economic and political center. It was apparently so magnificently constructed that it rivaled the ancient city of Thebes. Overall, we are still uncertain of his true motivation for building a new city, but it is possible that he desired to be closer to his territories in Canaan and Syria. This new urban center was home to large temples along with an enormous residential palace. 
a home that even sported his very own zoo. But despite all of this legendary construction, the city was ultimately lost to the desert sands. In the 10th century AD, Iraqi rabbi Saudia Gaon proposed that the site of Ramses had to be identified with An Shams. This is now a suburb of the modern Egyptian capital of Cairo. Later, during the early 20th century, Pi Ramses was thought to be the same as that of Tanis, also in the eastern Nile Delta. This theory was based on the amount of statuary and other material from Pi Ramses found there. Since then, that theory has lost ground, as most of the material in Tanis is believed to have originated elsewhere. The current belief is that Pi Ramses was about 19 miles or 30 kilometers south of Tanis, near the modern city of Kantir. Today, at this location, the colossal feet of a statue of Ramses are almost all that remains above ground. And honestly, it's not even the feet from the statue, really just his toes. The rest of the city is believed to be buried under the farmer's fields that have overtaken the area. Fortunately, I guess, that wasn't the only giant statue of the giant pharaoh. Another one was found at Memphis, albeit in six pieces. This one, in total, weighs some 83 tons. In the 1950s, it was moved from Memphis to Cairo and reconstructed. Then, in 2006, and precipitated by pollution damage, it was moved yet again this time from Cairo to the new Grand Egyptian Museum, located relatively close to Giza, which is now essentially a suburb of Cairo. Near Thebes, Ramses had a temple complex known as the Ramesseum built. In this temple was a truly gigantic statue of the pharaoh. Today, only fragments of the base and torso remain. It's estimated that when it was in its original form, Ramses was portrayed as being seated. The statue was probably about 56 feet, or 17 meters high. It's also thought that this piece weighed in the neighborhood of 1,000 tons. Surrounding the statue were carved scenes of his military victories, including his triumph at Kadesh. But we know it was only a partial victory, but to his stonemasons, it was triumphal. The temple also sports a great courtyard that continues the splendor and includes two more statues of the seated pharaoh, one carved from pink granite and the other from black granite. Overall, he erected more colossal statues of himself than any other pharaoh. Next to the complex stood the temple of Seti I. Unfortunately, most of these temples, statues, and other monuments had been reduced to mere fractions of their original sizes. He had a similar but smaller temple built in Nubia, along with other personal monuments marking his accomplishments. And by now, you should be discerning a trend. Temples that sport statues of him, positioning him not only as a long-serving ruler, but at the time, a living deity. All of this construction served a dual purpose, Obviously, Ramses wanted to cement his legacy, but he also needed an economic stimulus and a workforce gamefully employed and continuous construction projects accomplished that goal. After reigning for 30 years, Ramses was allowed the rare feat of actually having a said festival 
Very few Egyptian rulers lasted this long, especially his recent predecessors. But he wasn't even halfway done. In his case, his reign, at least up to that point, was exceptional. He had brought peace, maintained the borders, and built great and numerous monuments and temples throughout the empire. The empire was wealthier and more formidable than it had been in nearly a century. And to note, the first said festival was held after the ruler's 30th year. The subsequent festivals were held every two years after that. By this math, Ramses would have had 13 or 14 such festivals. Over the course of his rule, Ramses brought great prosperity to the empire, making the country rich from all the supplies and treasure he had collected as tributes from other empires. His legacy was so complete that no less than nine subsequent pharaohs took the name Ramses, both in his honor and to presume his authority. Of course, this episode wouldn't be complete without touching on his mummy. He was originally buried in his own tomb in the Valley of the Kings. Like many of his predecessors, later, and due to the pervasive threat of tomb robbers, a moon priest moved his body to the Theban necropolis. In his case, they rewrapped it in cloth and placed him inside the tomb of Queen Amos Enhopi. A mere 72 hours later, it was moved yet again, this time to the tomb of the high priest Penijab II, which is far more detailed than we see for the other relocated mummies. So how do we know this? It is all recorded in hieroglyphs on the linen covering his body. Of course, that tomb was not his body's last stop, as today it is in Cairo's Egyptian Museum, but it made a little side trip in the intervening years. I may have gotten a little ahead of myself though, before touching on his mummy's modern adventures, first the original tomb. It was not until 1995 that his original burial chamber was rediscovered. It has turned out to be the largest tomb in the Valley of the Kings, and is thought to have originally contained the mummified remains of some of the king's estimated 52 sons, one for each week of the year. There's no count of his daughters. Over the next decade, approximately 150 of the tomb's corridors and chambers had been located. It's currently thought that the tomb may contain as many as 200 corridors and chambers. Researchers believe that at least four of Ramsey's sons, including Meriatum, Seti, along with Amun Arakesha, who was his eldest, were buried there at least by some interpretations of the inscriptions, along with other artifacts. But unfortunately, the tomb, despite its many rooms, hallways, and chambers, has been thoroughly, completely, and utterly looted, to the point that there were no intact burials discovered. Also, there have been little subsequent funeral debris uncovered. To be clear, there were thousands of pot shards, oshabi figures, beads, amulets, pieces of canopic jars, and fragments of wooden coffins. But there were no intact sarcophagi, mummies, or mummy cases. Now, this may show that many of the rooms were unused, but most probably, anything of value had been removed. And it wasn't only his tomb that yielded insight into his life and times but also the tomb of his beloved consort, Nefertari, 
She was Ramsay's first wife and his favorite queen. Many illustrations of Nefertari appear on temple walls and in statues throughout the kingdom. But it's thought that she died relatively early in their marriage, maybe in childbirth. After her death, Ramses elevated his secondary wife, Isefnefret, to the position of queen. And after her death, his daughters became his consorts. Such a strange time. And even after the death of Nefertari, Ramses seemed to have pined for her, having her likeness engraved on walls and statues long after he had taken other wives. She was, after all, the mother of his sons, Ramses, and Amun Ervinaef. When her tomb was uncovered in 1904, it showed obvious signs that it had been looted many times throughout the 3,500 or so years since having been sealed. But the looters ignored the paintings on the walls. Well, really, the paintings that were part of the walls. These drawings are thought to represent many chapters in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Her burial chamber is close to 1,000 square feet, or 90 square meters, with the ceiling showing the night sky, painted in dark blue, with a multitude of golden five-pointed stars. On one side of the chamber are depictions of the gates and doors of the kingdom of Osiris, with their guardians and the specific magic spells that had to be uttered by the deceased in order to go past the doors, essentially the crib notes for a proper passage to the afterlife. When first built, the queen's red granite sarcophagus was placed in the middle of this chamber. According to their ancient religion, it was in this chamber, known as the Golden Hall, that the regeneration of the recently deceased more recently mummified, took place. Another wall shows both Osiris and Anubis, their deities of the afterlife. In the vestibule are scenes where offerings are made to these idols, along with a scene where Nefertari is stood before the deities, who welcome her into their presence. And with that, back to Ramses. In 1974, Egyptologists visiting his tomb noted that the mummy's condition was rapidly deteriorating, and they needed help in determining what to do. So the next year, it was flown to Paris for examination and preservation. But you just can't go between different countries without proper documentation. In order to make him legal, Ramses was issued an Egyptian passport, and this passport had a space for his occupation. So what was his job? He was listed as the king, but noted as being deceased. No sense lying on the application. That might hold up immigration. When he arrived in Paris, he was received with full military honors, the type usually reserved for a ruler. I wonder if he compared it to the way the cities in Canaan greeted him as a conqueror. During the examination, his mummy showed signs of battle wounds along with old fractures, arthritis, and poor circulation. His arthritis is believed to have made him walk with a hunched back for the last couple of decades of his life. But when you live to be about 90, even today, such afflictions are really common. In his case, it's thought that the more common hunched back element of ankylosing spondylitis was not the cause. This disorder, however, has been found in other mummies, 
Also, a large hole in the pharaoh's jawbone was discovered. Upon closer examination, researchers detected an abscess near his teeth that may have been serious enough to have caused death by infection. By the time of his death, he had other dental problems along with arthritis and a hardening of his arteries. But, like so many post-post, several millennia post-mortem examinations, there is a bit of uncertainty. There are some things, though, that are more certain. Ramses had a hooked nose, but it's unclear if he was born with this or it was the result of an accident. He also had a strong jaw, which certainly helped to stave off the effects of the tooth abscess. Like his father, he was about 5 feet 7 inches or 170 centimeters tall. And the physical examination of his mummy revealed even more. According to Gaston Maspero, a late 19th century Egyptologist, who was the person to first unwrap Ramses' mummies, he said, quoting, On the temples there are a few sparse hairs, but at the pole the hair is quite thick, forming smooth, straight locks about 5 centimeters in length. Pausing for a second. 5 centimeters is about 2 inches. Unpausing. His hair was white at the time of death, and possibly auburn during life. They have been dyed a light red by the spices used in embalming. The mustache and beard are thin. The hairs are white, like those of the head and eyebrows. The skin is of earthy brown splotched with black. The face of the mummy gives a fair idea of the face of the living king. End quote. About a century later, when his mummy was in Paris on its official visit, another French Egyptologist, this time Professor P.F. Sekali, determined that Ramsey's hair was surprisingly preserved and revealed some complementary data, especially about its natural color. Ramsey sported wavy red hair along with fair skin, and this was doubly significant, as in ancient Egypt, people with red hair were associated with their deity Set, the slayer of Osiris. And what's more, the name of Ramsey's father, Seti, means, means follower of Set, so he too may have had red hair. So where did this red hair come from? Well, there is the theory that he may have descended from the North African Berbers. In some Berber tribes, such as the Riffians of the Atlas Mountains, they have a frequency of blonde hair of almost 60%. The same group has a percentage of red-haired people, which is comparable to that of the Irish. And that's about it for his mummy. So now, for Ramses and the Exodus. Several weeks back, I covered the more popular theories about the actual date of the Exodus. As a quick refresher, the primary reason that some subscribe to the Ramses as the Exodus Pharaoh is a passage in Exodus chapter 1. This passage reads, Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built supply cities, Pithom and Ramses, for Pharaoh. End quote. In episode chapter 3, episode 33, I walk through the reasons this theory isn't as subscribed to as the 1446 BC Exodus dating. Essentially, if the pharaoh was Ramses II, 
then the other dates mentioned later in the Old Testament become problematic. Primarily 1 Kings chapter 6 that states that Solomon's temple was built 480 years after the Exodus, and this temple was built in the year 970 BC. So, relying on that date, Ramses I ruled too late. In addition, there is no archaeological evidence that supports Ramses as the Exodus pharaoh. Evidence that would support the use of slave labor in the construction of Pi Ramses is also lacking, as is evidence of a mass exodus during his reign. In the construction of the city, along with his other extensive building projects, there is evidence that both skilled and unskilled Egyptian laborers were either paid for their work or volunteered, maybe voluntold, as part of their civic duty. The tradition of Egyptian citizens volunteering their time to work on the king's building projects is well documented. Also to them, in their polytheistic religion, it was believed that deeds and works, such as volunteering for their living deity, would lead to a better outcome in the afterlife. In that realm, they could be called up to labor for Osiris on the building projects he would want. And recall back many, many episodes ago, where I mentioned that their practice of placing Shopti dolls in the tombs and graves of the dead was so that the dolls would take the place of the deceased in these eternal work projects. Ramses was fastidious for recording the histories of his accomplishments and for embellishing the facts when they did not quite fit history, as he wished it preserved. It seems highly unlikely that such a king would forget to record the plagues which fell upon Egypt are the flight of the Hebrew slaves, except, of course, that these did not present him favorably. So, in the end, who knows? Certainly not me. Now, that hasn't stopped non-biblical sources from relying on Ramses as the biblical pharaoh. In the 1956 film, The Ten Commandments, Ramses was played by Yul Brynner. This classic movie shows Ramses as a vengeful tyrant as well as the main antagonist of the film. He was also mad that his father, Seti, preferred Moses over him. Other movies draw the same conclusion. The 1998 animated film The Prince of Egypt depicted Ramses as Moses' adoptive brother. In that movie, he was also the villain. And that's where I'll end this episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up the history with Ramses' successor, Merneptah. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, please go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, do subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.